Um, so first and foremost, I want to thank everyone for being here. It's a rainy day, and um, I know that I was probably a little rough getting out to Red Hook. It's never easy. Um, I came here from Randall's Island, and I felt like I just crossed like the border to get here. <laughs> Um, so, so first of all, thank you for that. I also want to thank um, everyone at 154 um, for giving us the opportunity to do this talk. This is my third engagement with the art fair. A year ago, um, here, um, I had the opportunity to talk with two fantastic artists, um, Maleko Magosi and um, LeVar Monroe. And then in October in London, um, I did a similar talk with an artist named Teo Ishitu, um, who's uh, Ethiopian and uh, raised in the UK. So today, um, it's a great privilege for me because um, Ruby Anyanyechi Amanze is someone who I've known um, quite a few years now. And I, I think we originally met maybe seven years ago, something like that. And, um, and in the time that has passed, um, so many wonderful things have happened for her um, as an artist. And also, uh, we've had the opportunity to collaborate on a number of projects um, in 2012. Um, we worked on an exhibition, small show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music um, entitled Waiting for the Queen. Um, in 2013, you were in a group show that was curated by um, Larry Ose Mensa and I at Mixed Greens Gallery. The show was called Crossing the Line. Um, last year, we worked together again um, with Larry at another show called uh, No Such Place, which was at Edward Tyler Nahum Fine Art. And then this year, we are collaborating in a, on a museum exhibition that I organized at um, Cam Raleigh in North Carolina um, with three other wonderful artists. Um, the show is entitled The Ease of Fiction. So as you can see and hear, I'm a big fan of Ruby's work. I, every opportunity that I have to work with you, I've taken it. And, um, and I want to thank you for being here today because I know that um, when we originally started talking about the idea of doing something like this together, you and I had the bo both had the same concerns about making sure that our conversation wasn't going to be the same old tired-ass conversation um, that people tend to have. And so because of that um, feeling, I really had to dig deep and think of a topic that would be a little fresh and different and, um, and you actually inspired the topic. Um, when we were um, interviewing you for the videos for The Ease of Fiction, um, there was something you said in answering one of the questions that stood out to me so profoundly that I never really um, stopped thinking about it. And I just kind of kept working it in my mind. And it was the idea that play is a privilege. And, um, and so in thinking about today's talk, I was thinking, like, man, you know, what, what, do we, what do we have here? How can we sort of like peel the layers of this thing? So I just want to kind of get right into it because there are obviously a number of questions that I have and statements that I hope to make and for you to make as well. But just, just kind of speaking um, broadly, how does play factor into your work as an artist? Sort of where, where does play fit into it? Uh, it fits in a few different ways. One way is just thinking about the process of creating the drawings, that this body of work began a few years ago, and at that point, um, the need for certain uh, symbols, I guess, was more um, important. And uh, the body began 2012, and four years later, the need for some of the, the content or the meaning of those things has um, it's changed, it's evolved, and I'm in a different space now with the work. So because, because of that time that has lapsed, um, there is more 
space for me to just play in the studio, to play with some of these images, to play with um, the different ways that they interact with each other, the different things that, how the meaning of them has changed, <laughs> or how the meaning of them has um, even lessened to a certain degree, right. um, which opens, it opens up a lot of things for me. So my process in the studio is very much about um, discovery and the curiosity of figuring out things, like solving problems, problems uh, on paper with the, with the characters and with their narrative. The, you know, the thing that I wanted to um, also kind of really get into regarding this idea of play and why it's political and why it's charged has a lot to also do with culture and has to do with, you know, ethnicity, race, and, and, and those issues as well, in the sense that much of the art that is associated with the quote-unquote black experience, black art in general, or the diaspora, particularly at a fair like 154, where you're seeing the works that are um, sort of uh, created by artists from all over the world, clearly, not just from the continent, but artists, generally artists of color, who are uh, expressing a lot of different ideas through their work. And many of those ideas are very weighty or very, um, or very connected to things like oppression and things like colonialism and really important ideas that still need to be worked through. I mean, these are not things that have been resolved and are ready to be put away into, a, you know, put away into the chest, never to be discussed again. Um, however, I think that um, one of the things that is often overlooked and that milieu is the fact that we have a right to also experiment, the right to um, not take ourselves so seriously, the right to joke, the right to play, the right to um, be curious and kind of keep that inner child alive. And people give a lot of lip service to keeping that inner child alive. But every time you see an adult letting that inner child come out, they are subject to a lot of scrutiny and a lot of criticism for not being serious, you know, particularly an artist as well, right? Um, and I know that you've probably experienced that as well in terms of being asked to explain certain aspects of your work that are not necessarily rooted in the same conversation of, you know, that same dialogue around colonialism and oppression and things of that nature. I think that it's even more heightened when that artist is, like you're saying, a black artist, an African artist. It's like, what right do I have to create a space for myself within the work or within my life to talk about play? Um, that there's a frivolity around that, that um, I must not be aware of police brutality and all of these very real issues that are happening that of course I'm aware of, um, both in the contemporary sense and historically. Um, but because of those things and because I'm in this particular package, it's all of a sudden my responsibility as well as the, res as the responsibility of all artists of color to, for their work to be used for um, social and political reasons. Um, and I do think that play is a social and political space, uh, particularly for uh, a person of color who doesn't have that right, supposedly. Um, but it is something that comes up a lot in talking about my work or looking at my work, like where is the question about where, it, where is the African part 
in this. <laughs> um, whether it's an aesthetic thing, like which, which part of it can I look at and visually connect to an entire continent? Or which part can I look at and say, okay, this person um, is dealing with trauma because we want this person to deal with trauma. Um, and if I refuse to um, prescribe to that, one, that doesn't mean that I'm ignorant of, you know, the things that are happening, but um, two, it's just, it becomes problematic sometimes for the viewer to um, accept. I'd, and I'd, I don't think that that's the case with... Um, I think there's a lot more freedom for artists um, European of European ancestry to pretty much do whatever they want um, and not be apologetic about that. Um, art can, and for some people, is purely about form or purely about, and some will even say, like, this is about nothing. I just kind of made it because I like it, and that's okay. But that's less okay um, for a black artist or an African artist. It has to be political. It has to be... Um, heavy, I guess, in a certain way, or what people are understanding to be heavy. No, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from, and I think, um, you know, there are probably, you know, many people here who feel similarly that they have to always sort of explain their way through a conversation or navigate their way through a conversation that is almost like a black hole trying to suck you into one particular direction as it relates to your professional life or your practice. Um, and I could give countless examples. It's not even necessary because you've given plenty of great ones. Um, I, I want to talk about your process. Um, what, what you're seeing here projected um, on the screen are examples of, of, of Ruby's work. And we're not going to talk about the particular um, works that are on the screen. But um, I, wanted, I would just want to kind of get into how you go about creating work in your studio, what types of materials you use, um, what do you use as sort of reference and resources or inspiration? Um, the, well, it's an ongoing narrative, non-linear narrative um, that includes the same group of characters. So those characters are recurring characters, they have names, they have personalities, and each of them in their origin came from a very particular place or um, inspiration. For example, the, mer the merman, mer creature, um, came from, my mom is from River State in Nigeria, and um, that group, that area of Nigeria is referred to as the River Rhine area. So growing up with her and being around other people, meeting other people from that particular region, they, they were very closely relating their identity to water as opposed to land. Um, and that got me to thinking about m different mythologies and folklores that include water spirits and creatures that come from the water and dwell in the water, um, and their identity is connected to that. So that's one example of like the beginning of one of the creatures. Um, so all of, at this point, all of the creatures are, their personality is pretty much established. Um, and it's about, like I mentioned, like playing around with that, creating new spaces for them to exist in, creating new interactions between them. Um, everything is a drawing on paper with fairly traditional materials, graphite, ink, 
um, some photo transfers, glitter. Um, I reference a lot of, I collect a lot of images and those images could come from historical photographs. Um, they could come from pop culture references, like sampling from music videos or art performances. Um, I'm, I'm constantly looking at things, like really looking and observing things in my day to day um, and filing away those images, whether it's two people on a bus in a particular interaction or an image of one that I'm remembering. I saw this image somewhere of someone that had a backpack that was made out of balloons and they were, I can't even remember if they were floating up from that or not, but things like that stick in my head. Um, and on my computer, I have now so many images of dancers and acrobats and um, think different searches that I, I might be doing for a particular piece. And once I have those images um, in the process of making the drawing, it's kind of, I think a lot about the space, but then I'm piecing together the dancer with the person with the backpack that turns into a balloon, with the person that's sitting on a chair and the chair and their um, legs are made out of gold and they're melting in, like, it, that's how the drawings evolve, is by making those sorts of relationships and one thing, one image leading to the next image and all of them kind of being jumbled together. Um, thank you. you. You said, um, I think it was one of our email exchanges, but um, I thought this was quite profound. You said, um, when we were talking about process, and you said it's a process that relieves itself from the burden of content. Mm -hmm. And um, could you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Um, I'm not thinking, sometimes some of the drawings come from a very specific real life story. It could be my own, it could be something from an email exchange with a friend, something that I saw, wherever. Other times it comes from maybe wanting to work with a particular character, um, thinking about a particular space, like um, for example, looking down into a very deep and narrow space, or the corner space between this plane and that plane. Um, so from that space, it's not necessary. I'm, I'm very rarely sitting down to make a drawing that is about X, Y, Z. Um, if there is a piece of it that is X from whichever story, that gets mixed in with make-believe. All of the drawings at some point, real story or not, go down some road of make-believe. So, and those decisions, again, are made in the process of playing and making these relationships from one image to the next. So because, and that's what I mean by them not, um, I don't feel burdened with, there isn't, I, I can't, and when people ask, oh, what is this piece about, um, very rarely can I give a singular answer because that's not how the pieces are made. And they could be about the space. <laughs> they could be about um, inventing multiple spaces within one drawing plane that are not real. Right. Um, they could be about 
um, these creatures play, a lot of times the creatures are actually playing, like they're hula hooping or they're sliding or in a pool with flotation armbands, a lot of references to actual play. Um, but I, if you see someone in a drawing that's hanging from a monkey bar, that's what they're doing. There's no, there's no, there, there's no background story necessarily to that. Um, I might have searched for many different images of children in a playground, and one thing led to another and led to another, um, and that's how the drawings come about. So I can't say to you, this one is about, and this symbolizes this. Um, it's about space, making spaces, play, freedom, magic, those sorts of things. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because oftentimes when these types of talks begin, people, as we did today, there was a biography read, right? And I'm becoming increasingly concerned about um, you know, the way in which someone's written bio or narrative bio sort of pigeonholes them into a certain, um, certain place or starts to sort of generate a, a particular type of perception. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, earlier on in my curatorial career, um, I, I used to, you know, identify myself as, you know, as someone who was born and raised in Brooklyn, right? Because I thought that that was, you know, well, it's true, but also I thought that that would sort of make it a little bit more clear um, of sort of like my perspective was being maybe a slightly different friend than, you know, than maybe someone who was born in another country or, or born in another state and certainly another city in this country. But I began to realize that all of all of the people who read that began to assume certain things about how I would sort of think about certain um, topics or subject matter. And so I sort of removed it because, you know, I mean, obviously I've had the, the you know, luxury of seeing more places than Brooklyn. Um, but also um, I felt as if in a way it was steering people or leading the conversation someplace before the conversation even began. And I think with artists, um, particularly in the context of a fair like 154, where it's sort of geographically specific, you know, you'll see the artist's name, you'll see the country that they're either born in or live in, and then, you know, and then their date of birth. And then I kind of zero in on that middle part and I'm, and I'm trying to understand like, what is that supposed to tell me? Right, because in a way, it's supposed to um, give me some context. But the problem is that most people don't have the the knowledge to have the to put it into context. So if I say this is you know Jane Doe born in Malawi in 1980, what does that actually mean to the average person who's either never been to Malawi and doesn't understand anything about the place or the culture or the politics or what have you? And so, I mean, for you, you've lived in so many different places. And, and, you know, now when people introduce you, it's like, oh, Ruby Amanze, she was born in Nigeria, raised in the UK, currently lives in New York City. It's sort of like, you know, like the beginning of a fight, you know, like they're just kind of going to give you a weight and going to give you, you know, middleweight champion of art. Um, so anyway, how, how are you dealing with that in terms of people wanting to readily identify you with place? Because your work is not about any particular place. It's not, but it did start from that. And um, I'm very aware and can make the relationship between um, my being from, Ni less my being born in Nigeria, because I could, I left Nigeria when I was eight months old and didn't return, returned for the first time, 13, hated it, 
didn't return again until I was 29. Um, so, and I'm 33 now, and I have only that from 29 to now. That's my experience of um, developing a relationship specifically with Lagos, um, which is not where I'm from. Right. Um, but now at this point, having developed that on my own terms, uh, outside of family, I went back, I lived there, I have friends there, I speak to someone in Lagos every single day. Um, I, I can't separate that from who I am and uh, what involvement that has in the work that I'm currently making. Nor can I separate England, nor can I separate uh, America. So it is, I do see, um, for me personally, how those places and experiences have influenced the work, initially just with an, an interest in home, um, an interest in a middle space, um, an interest in hybridity, etc., and these different chapters, home branched into architecture, branched into space, um, all of those things have accumulated to this current chapter. Um, the aliens in my work come very specifically from um, identifying as an alien, not as a, you know, an, a woe is me sort of thing, but that I'm an I'm partly an alien. So all, and they're hybrids in the work and that comes very specifically from being a hybrid. So my being from Nigeria, England, America is directly connected to where the work began. Um, but the work I feel also, I would like for the work to have a conversation with design with and with furniture design, for example, which is something I'm very interested in and always have been interested in, with architecture, which I almost uh, went back to school to study. I've loved architecture for as long as I've loved art. Um, but because people get caught on the Nigeria part more so than the other parts, um, I feel that the work people have a hard time separating that out and allowing the work to participate in many different conversations. So now at this point, a lot of requests for shows or things like that are coming from the context of Africa, um, which I'm not saying is necessarily bad, but how can the work, if I am as an African artist partially, um, how can it participate in a conversation with furniture design? And for some people, for some reason, that's difficult for people to, to get. Like, no, I no, thought you were an African artist. What does that have to do with right. anything else other than Africa? No, no, I, I, I can totally, totally relate to that. And, um, you know, in, during the holidays, I, I, I took, a little, took a little trip, took a long trip um, with, with, with family. And um, I know it's just going to sound like, I'm, like a weird thing to explain, but I'll explain it anyway. So um, and, and I was, in, I was in, uh, in Japan with family, and, um, and we were in, I was in this hot spring called an Osin, right? And I was there by myself at first, right? And then slowly but surely, a lot of really old Japanese men started showing up and naked <laughs> into this hot, this natural hot spring. You know, and after like a minute or two, one of them kind of looks at me and he goes, American, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, 
yeah, I'm American, you know? And it's like a moment like that when you start realizing that when you take yourself out of a certain context, you know? Um, I mean, clearly you can see that I'm black, so he could have said, Black American <laughs> or African American. I thought he would have said African American. Um, but, you know, I, I point that out to say that when you go to certain other places, you really get to understand that how you may perceive yourself is very different than how the world perceives you. And uh, I was talking to someone recently about being, you know, they were asking me all these questions about being, being black and, you know, and as a curator, you know? And I said, you know, it might surprise you a little bit, but actually, I'm actually more of an American curator than a black curator, you know? And I said, if you think about it, all of the things that I'm interested in and concerned about um, really have been very, been from the perspective of someone who grew up in America, understanding the history of black people in America, of course, and understanding how I might be perceived because of the color of my skin and certainly, you know, cultural background. But when I think about how I grew up and how I was educated and how I see the broader world, it is actually through the eyes of an American. And, and I think that people can sometimes get caught up in that and sort of like forget that that's, you know, that's a big part of your identity as well. Particularly, you know, I can't speak for others, but I know particularly for, for my upbringing and a lot of um, people that I grew up with um, were not comfortable identifying themselves as American, even though they're American citizens and they were born here because of the political climate, sort of like black, then American or African American, but never just saying I'm an American, right? Because of what that kind of like means. It doesn't, it's not even like a patriotic statement. It's just like a statement of fact, right? Um, but I own that too, because I'm not gonna let somebody take that away from me and my thinking about the whole, the whole person that I am. Um, so anyway, I don't know why I said all that. <laughs> um, I know we're getting, oh, we're not that tight, that tight on time. Um, let's, let's like maybe talk a little bit about this idea of, of keeping your inner child alive as you're making the work. Um, I know a lot of artists and I think one of the challenges, um, for any artist is to stay excited about making work, you know, in the midst of all of the commercial aspects of being an artist, working with a gallery or doing the art fairs and all the other things that come along with it. What actually keeps you engaged in this process? Is it, is it, what is it giving to you? You know, um, one of my, um, f you know, I, I don't know if he's like one of my favorite artists, but he's actually one of my favorite artists to hear talk, Grayson Perry said, you know, that, um, what did he say? What am I, I'm losing my train of thought here. What did Grayson Perry say? He said, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. I need to stop playing. Um, I, I <laughs> he said that, you know, like, you have to nurture that part of yourself. That, you know, that, that, that childlike part of your, yourself is almost like a little furry creature that's in the woods and you have to, you have to coax it out. You know, if, you, if you're too serious, you frighten it away, but you have to, you know, you have to like joyfully allow it to come and be in the room with you. Um, how, do you how do you stay in that place? Because your, your work has a certain, um, a certain levity, a certain lightness, and not light as in as the opposite of serious, but but lightness to it. Uh, I, when I'm in my studio, um, I'm very intentional about being in that space, and that space has nothing to do with 
um, the commercial world, the gallery, whatever. It's it's my space, and um, I go there every day, and I shut the door, and I'm there because I want to be there, and because what I'm doing brings me joy. Um, so I'm very intentional about operating from that place of joy, that making drawings is something that I love to do. I've always loved to do it, um, and I've I've gotten that pleasure from creating since since the beginning, before there was a gallery, before there was visibility, it was and still is about the joy of creating. Um, so I, I, I'm aware of that in the forefront, particularly now as the work is leaving the gallery more, um, to hold on to the reason that takes me into the, gal into the studio. Um, so in the, in the process of um, creating, it has to still come back to the love. It has to come back to, and that could be in mixing a particular color that I enjoy. It could be in um, the enjoyment of not knowing what I'm doing um, and starting from a place of, I mean, one, it's a, it's a great joy to have the, the privilege of going to a studio every day um, and doing something that I love to do, and I'm aware of that. There are a lot of people who are in um, jobs uh, that they don't enjoy. Um, so if I've chosen that, which is not always a, um, you know, it doesn't, it's, there's risk and there's, it's not the safest choice <laughs> to, to make, um, then I have to keep it about the love. So in the studio, I'm starting with a drawing and I have my materials and like, what is it today that I, that I want to do? What questions do I have today? What am I going to discover today? What am I gonna stumble upon? And that's, um, I hold that very dear. Um, and the, the child-like curiosity is a big part of it. Like, um, keeping it, I don't know, been working now with paper for a few years, but I'd, it would take, in any one medium, a lifetime of uh, investment um, to discover what that medium is possible, capable of. Like, I, I'm <laughs> a few years into working with paper, I'm a few years into working with graphite, so there are constantly new discoveries to be made. And those discoveries, I think, um, should be approached from the perspective of curiosity and not necessarily knowing the answer before I start. If I can hold on to that and be childlike in that approach, um, the joy is retained and I'm not going to get bored because I, I'm going to keep figuring it out. And oh, what happens if I pour resin on top of a photo transfer? Coming to it from that, it might not go anywhere, but if I keep asking those sorts of questions, those sorts of playful questions, um, I stay happy. I don't even think I have another question <laughs> after that. Thank you, Ruby. So I wanna, I wanna open it up to the audience. Um, are there any questions that anyone would like to ask? Sure. So if you could speak as loud as possible so others could hear your question, that'd be great. Identifying the artist by the 
Well, if, 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 I, if I understand the question, I'll, I'll attempt to answer it. Um, you know, the, the way that, um, and maybe I can answer this better by way of a story, okay? Um, so um, around 2007, so about nine years ago, I was walking through Chelsea. And, um, and it's, it's funny because it was only nine years ago, but it, to me it seems like a lifetime ago because almost 90% of the people that I count as my friends now um, because of my profession, I didn't know them then. So I know so many people that were not even, they weren't in my phone, I didn't have their email, I didn't, just people I didn't know. So I felt like an outsider in many ways. Um, but not only because I didn't know a lot of people in, in the space, but also the way that those galleries appear to be fortresses to me. Um, the architecture of the space, the, the, as you mentioned, the white walls, the, the tall glass doors, um, you know, the, the, the gallery, um, you know, receptionist right at the front who obviously doesn't want to talk to you. Um, all of those things seem so um, formidable and imposing to me. And I realized that that's on purpose, that the entire um, experience that most high-end, quote-unquote, high-end galleries and certainly um, really big established museums until recently, the, the, the way that they were designed was to make you feel intimidated before you even walk in. So from a commercial standpoint, you're supposed to feel as though you don't know as much as the people that are on the inside. 
Um, and from an academic or museum standpoint, you're supposed to be in awe of what you're seeing. The, the, the columns, the, you know. The, the Met's not just big to be big, you know. Uh, it's also big because it's supposed to, ev you're, it's supposed to evoke a certain um, feeling in you. When, as you approach those steps to go up in there. So, you know, as a curator, what I try to do at all, at all times is to create exhibitions that are accessible and challenging at the same time, to give people the sense that they don't have to know everything about what is going on in the show to enjoy what they're seeing, and certainly the questions are fine, and to even think about the spaces in a way that don't feel, so that people don't feel when they walk into a gallery space, and, and, and even if I'm working with a museum, to give people this sense that it's okay, you know, it's not okay to touch, sure, but it's okay to roam about, it's okay to get close, it's okay to scratch your head and say, I'm not sure what this is about, but, it's, but it seems like this is a fine place for me to ask such a question. Even when I'm you know, designing wall text and, and writing about the shows, I, I try to read it from the perspective of someone who doesn't know anything about what this is about, so that I can at least say to myself, you know what, um, if I was just walking in off the street, even as an educated person, whatever that means, right? If I was just walking off the street and reading this, I, I want to say that I know that this is, I can, I can understand what is being said here, you know? So it's not only architecture, but it's also communication and language and all those things as well. Sometimes it's unavoidable, though. You know, there, there are some spaces that just are so calcified, you ain't going to change them. You're going to work in that space and just do your best to put the kind of show forward that people feel that they can connect with. Yeah. Any other questions? Sure. Um, sure. The, the first character in the narrative is Ada the alien. That's the fluorescent female-looking character that you see. Um, and right after that was Audrey the leopard, um, obviously. Uh, Audrey the leopard is a hybrid, so they're all, the characters are all either aliens or hybrids or ghosts. Um, Ada is an alien, Audrey is a hybrid. The two figures on the left, they, are, they go by twin. <clears throat> um, twin always appears headless. Twin is a duo, so they are twin. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, they all have a starting point from um, a particular story or inspiration. So Twin was partly inspired um, thinking about different mythologies around twins in West Africa specifically, in Nigeria specifically, in Yoruba culture specifically. Um, and in, in my version, twin plays on, um, partly on that hybridity or duality, partly on are they good, are they evil, are they mischievous, are they, there's a trickster 
quality around a lot of these mythologies around twin. So they are, they are mischievous, they are tricksters, they are acrobatic in my story. Um, they are the most childlike of the creatures. Um, so they are often jumping and flipping and doing that sort of thing. Then there's Merman. Um, the ghosts are the, the heads, the disembodied heads. They are always drawn from women. They are drawn from women that I both know and from strangers. Um, and they serve somewhat as a guardian character. Um, and that's partly thinking about visibility and invisibility as it pertains to belonging. That one can, if I go to Lagos, I am very visible. And that's how people can guess at whether or not I belong there because they can see me in a way that they're not seeing other women in the market um, versus being visible as a marker of belonging. Um, and then there's some characters that pop in and out, like these two, the, the standing figure and the sitting dark figure. And they don't have names, and I don't, they're not as developed as some of the other characters. But generally speaking, there are those three categories. Generally speaking, they are, um, I don't assign gender to them, uh, except for Ada the alien. Audrey the leopard is a they. They are maternal, they present as male. So there's a lot of fluidity in their character as it pertains to um, how they move in space, gender, age, things like that. Okay, part two of that question. And then <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of questions for you, and I generally have always a lot of questions, so I apologize for that. But just as a follow-up question on that, because I find that very fascinating, and I love the play to methodology or your imagination or your inner child that you're bringing onto paper. And um, what I also liked was the fact that you mentioned that you're very interested on the, for example, furniture side. So if you were to create a furniture piece, I would be very curious, how would it look like? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I've just started to make the drawings dimensional. Um, I don't, so I'm working with someone to fabricate the, the mounting device. I have no three-dimensional skills <laughs> at all. Um, so I have, I don't know if I were to create a piece of furniture, it would most likely be a collaboration with someone. Um, but there is a way in the drawings that I'm, I'm always thinking about line and shape and angles and in-between spaces. And um, I guess I do have a, an, an aesthetic, a design aesthetic that I can apply to furniture, to architecture that I pull into the drawings. But I don't know what a piece of furniture would look like if I were to design it. I think we have time for one or two more, if, if there are any other questions. Sure, in the middle. My grandmother has three sets of twins. Wow. Um, yeah, which I grew up knowing and have always, so that's also part of where my fascination with twins comes from. Um, she had nine children and three sets of them were twins. But I have heard the similar statistic about Nigeria specifically. <clears throat> I have just learned something today. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we have time for one more question, sure. There are lots of people that inspire me, um, but I don't know if the if I agree fully about the idea that Af of African artists making art for how did you phrase it for Africans? Um, I feel that that's put that idea is put onto them. Um, I feel for the most part I'm assuming and hoping that artists make all artists make work. Um, from for themselves, for their own personal exploration, things that they're interested in. Once it leaves the studio, then it gets put into these categories. Then the writer comes, the curator comes, the market <laughs> person comes, and there's a price tag. That's when it gets tricky. So I just to um, so I don't fully I don't think I'm counter uh, in that way. Um, some artists that you ask artists who I'm interested in, yes. of African descent or generally? Um, one artist that I have always enjoyed and have paid tribute to in, in one specific drawing um, that will come up is uh, Malik Sidibe and some of his photographs of Africans um, the one, I'll point it out when it comes, but the one that I referenced um, are these two couples at a beach, I, I believe in Senegal. Um, and this photograph is from the 70s and it portrays, it's two couples on a beach, two African couples on a beach, chilling. And I love that imagery of um, and it speaks to my, my interest of pleasure and play and claiming that space, particularly in a time when such imagery was, didn't exist. You don't see Africans on a beach. Africans aren't, Africans don't go to the beach. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's some element of that, him claiming that space and photographing people in that light that, um, that I really admire. So he's one of the first, um, people that come to mind. Um, some other artists that I'm generally interested in. Um, on the design tip, the brothers Ronan and Owen Burlek. Um, I love their designs. Um, I really love Egon Shealy's drawings um, and Cy Twombly's drawings, as some people that come to mind. Well, great. Um, I know we said Last one. If there's one more, I will take it. Okay. Um, my question is, do you find that you really, that you are playing more now with your um, newfound, I guess the definition of play now than you did when you were an actual Yes, I do think so. Um, I think I went through, as an artist, I went through the chapter, I guess it was grad school-ish. I went to a school where I was the only black artist in the entire school. Um, and during that space, I felt, uh, I, I felt that I needed to make work in a particular way that was about a particular thing. 
So I, I went through that chapter and kind of dealt with that. And in the recent body of work, I guess I have returned to a sense of play that I didn't always have as an artist and didn't always have as a person. Um, I've always loved roller skating and I bought some roller skates maybe six months ago, um, but have lived several, several years without roller skates. Um, so yes, in, in a lot of ways, some of these elements of play in my personal life um, and in the art have been a new, just in the past few years. So. Well, great. Well, thank you all for today. Thank you, Ruby. And um, yeah. Now y'all go outside and play. <laughs>